Welcome back to The Secret Life of Leaders, where you get unprecedented access to the inner workings of Australia's leading thinkers and practitioners at the forefront of environmental, social and governance change. The cutting edge of change can often feel lonely, but you're not alone here. The Secret Life of Leaders rehumanizes the experience of life and leadership and creates a platform for us all to learn and grow together. Let's dive in. Tom White is a senior humanitarian leader with a track record of successfully leading large-scale humanitarian programs and organisations in conflict zones. He started out as a young peacekeeper in the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide. In his current role as senior United Nations official in the Gaza Strip, he draws on a unique mix of experience in humanitarian and development work in both the United Nations and and in non-government organisations with extensive experience in a range of countries in conflict. In Gaza, he leads a team of 13,000 staff to deliver education for 300,000 children and healthcare and food aid to 1.2 million refugees. In recent roles from Afghanistan, Syria, Libya and Iraq, He has led culturally diverse teams to deliver aid to people affected by war whilst concurrently engaging with governments, donors and other stakeholders to successfully raise funding and advocate for the rights and needs of vulnerable people affected by conflict and poverty. Tom White, welcome to The Secret Life of Leaders. Thanks, Angela. Nice to join you. So, Tom, let's just start at the most obvious place and you can tell us a bit about who you are and how you found yourself in this role of the director of the United Nations Refugee Agency for Palestinian Refugees. Well, I've I've been working in the sort of humanitarian and development area for about 20 years now. And so partly, I suppose, it's just a natural progression through a range of roles with the UN and NGOs, particularly focused on humanitarian aid and particularly in conflict zones. I grew up in Sydney. But I had an opportunity, I think I was 23, I was in Rwanda as a peacekeeper after the genocide there. And I think that something stuck in my mind at that point in terms of the impact of war on a civilian population. And I think that that, that little seed was sitting in, in my mind for quite a while. And then when I had a career change in my early 30s, the plan, you know, I finished a Master of Commerce, I was going to go into the commercial world and this little seed in my mind sort of pushed me into the humanitarian world and 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 now obviously all those years later now running the the UN's operations in Gaza amazing thank you for describing that chronology what impact are you desiring to have in the world in Gaza in particular and why are you so passionate about it now i feel that obviously part of it is this sense of wanting to serve populations in conflict. I feel that there's also probably something quite personal in it. It feeds my own desire for a bit of excitement or adrenaline at times. And to be quite honest, it can be quite addictive being in those sort of very fast-paced environments. Emotions are very raw. You're seeing humanity quite often at its most vulnerable, but also it's most genuine at, at times. So there's something that sort of pulls me to those environments. Of course, in Gaza now, you have a population there of around 
just over 2 million people who are basically locked into the Gaza Strip. It's 40 kilometres long and 10 kilometres wide. There's been an economic blockade of the Gaza Strip for into its 17th year now. It's been disastrous for the economy. Essentially, the private sector has collapsed. We see a range of ongoing conflict and then we have these escalations and we've just had had one about three weeks ago. And so that's lots of rocket fire from Gaza and then airstrikes from Israel. And uh, these people are now trying to eke out an existence where 70% of youth unemployment, 40% of the population are now what's called severely food insecure. So it means they're regularly going a day without a meal and our role there is to support the population and particularly the young population. And so we have about 300,000 kids in UNRWA schools, several thousand more in training colleges. And the other major work that we're doing is providing primary health care for about 1.2 million people. So in that regards, it's a big challenge, but it's also enormously rewarding. Tom, the statistics that you've offered there are confronting in anybody's terms. So thank you for the overview. Can you help us understand a little more deeply the key issues you're addressing there and the challenges and the complexities of working across such a broad scale of support in that particular environment? There are lots of parallels to what's happening in Gaza with other places that I've worked, Afghanistan or or Iraq or Libya. I mean, the environments are very, very complex. There's overlay over over overlay of local politics then you have regional actors who have influence over what's occurring then it's coupled with politics and violence and some of that's intercommunal violence or then you've got interstate violence and that very complex environment is also very very fluid and so it's trying to manage your programs manage your operations in a situation which is continually evolving, but also working with a group of people who are serving a traumatised population. And in many cases, our staff are also traumatised. So, for example, in Afghanistan, many of the staff on our team had been displaced by the fighting themselves over various years and had family members who were caught in parts of the, the country that were, for example, run by the Taliban, which meant that they couldn't then get access to those parts of the country. So, very complex, very fluid, dealing with a population and a staff in many cases who are traumatised. And I think the other big challenge is really uh, coming as an international aid organisation. It's this cross-cultural challenges that your staff may be Afghan or Palestinian or Libyan, but you're trying to deliver what is essentially international aid. And so it's trying to, to match up the expectations of the people you serve, your staff, and that of essentially the the international community, the donor community, countries who are providing this humanitarian assistance and linking that up into the international systems of accountability for, for aid. So I suppose they're the sort of three main challenges. Thank you. There's so much complexity there and fluidity in an environment where most leaders are grasping for certainty. It seems to be an environment with lots of uncertainty most of the time. Definitely. I think it runs through everything. And I remember years ago, somebody said, Tom, it's going to be complex, deal with it. And 
I find that a lot of my job is actually spending the time to understand what are all of the dynamics at play and set out a framework for our country office or for a team that says, yes, we understand the complexity at a, a certain level, aligning then what we need to be able to do and then testing and adjusting our operations or our programs as the situation evolves and giving giving your staff, giving your team this sort of sense that somebody is keeping an eye on that complexity and making things simpler that enable them to go ahead and do their job. Because I think it, it can be very, very overwhelming at times to say it is such a complex environment. How do we move forward in these circumstances? Or we put a plan in place and then a conflict frontline might change and suddenly you've got to reorientate all of your programming. So a lot of my role is about setting up the frameworks, the ways of thinking that enable teams to operate in those environments, but pivot when we have to. Mm, thank you. I'm really interested in how you lead that organisation of 13,000 people, and I just want to hold that thought. If you don't mind, we'll come back into that. Okay. Tom, what are the encouraging signs of change in this environment, if there are any, and how are the programs of work that you lead helping? I mean, at times when when the conflict is raging, it's very difficult to see how this is going to make a difference. Sometimes it's very immediate. And if you've got a population that's been recently displaced and they literally need the basics of life, food, water, shelter, you can get that on the ground very quickly and you see the immediate impact. But I've found that some of the most encouraging things have been where you are really helping people develop their own human capacity. And so in Afghanistan, we were running a program that had five to 6,000 young people doing a six-month trade course that was setting them up. And it was simple things such as, I remember out in Herat, uh, which is in the west of Afghanistan, just on the Iranian border, we were running, one of the courses we were running was mobile phone repair. And so they would do a course in learning how to repair mobile phones, and then we were helping them set up their own small businesses. And uh, I remember visiting a young guy who had been through our course, had set up his shop, and, I mean, his shop was the size of a phone box. But I went back about six months later, and he expanded his shop and taken over the next-door shop and was then retailing mobile phones. That was enormously rewarding because in a pretty tough place, because we'd been able to help him build some skills, he was then building his business, he was providing for his family. And, and similarly, in Gaza right now, we have just under 300,000 children in UNRWA schools run by the refugee agency I work for. And you can be in some parts of, of Gaza, very, very poor, very simple cinder block housing, very, very tough place to live and you sort of weave through this densely packed urban area and then come across this sort of big white three-story Unrua school and it's literally a haven for these kids because they 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 leave that 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 tough poor urban environment and so they're suddenly in this place of learning it's bright it's clean it's a learning environment and it's enabling those kids to get an education where otherwise they may not have been able to get an education. And particularly for the people of Gaza, they value education. As a refugee, 
I had a man, when I first arrived in Gaza, he said to me, I can't give my children land. I can't give my children property because I'm a refugee. The only thing I can give them is education. And so that's enormously rewarding to see kids performing very well at UNRWA schools. So that's where I think the change is going to come from. Mm, The capacity building. Lots of leaders that I work with complain of the struggle of balancing the long-term strategic change, the development work, with the short-term operational immediate burning issues. And you seem to have offered in that response examples of both. And I just wondered, I'm curious about your perspective on how you maintain that balance of the long-term and the short-term interventions. Right now, in terms of our operations in Gaza, our core business is education for children and healthcare for 1.2 million people. We run a primary healthcare network. I mean, that's that's the immediate, but simultaneously, we need to be able to respond to war. And so we spend a lot of time making sure that our teams can very, very quickly adapt to providing life-saving health services or converting some of our schools. We have capacity to host 150,000 internally displaced people in our schools. So we've got additional water tanks and solar systems on the roofs of schools, shower units, additional sanitation units so that we can quickly convert classrooms into literally dormitories for people who've been displaced by the fighting. There was quite a big conflict in April 21, and we've just finished a program of rebuilding or repairing over 7,000 houses. So a lot of our teams have got to maintain the focus on delivering the day-to-day whilst at the same time being prepared to respond to a very immediate needs of a conflict. And so I suppose the simplest way I could say is our teachers, and in particular our school principals, one day they're leading a a school with 50 staff and 1,000 students, and the next day they could be running an IDP centre. It's just the reality of life in Gaza. Mm. So the adaptability within the humans that you lead, but also it sounds like you've built in the ability to respond to short-term challenges in some of those longer-term programs of infrastructure and work, such as education. Correct, correct. Yeah, thank you. Tom, what have you learned so far? This is a challenging environment, this challenging program of social change. What have been some of the biggest lessons for you personally operating in this environment? I think, firstly, a sense of humility. I mean, we think that life is difficult, but you sit down with communities in some of these places and you realise how tough life is, some of the really, really difficult choices that they've needed to make, choices about whether to to move when the conflict's occurring, which can have life-altering decisions for generations if they've literally picked up and moved in a find themselves in a refugee camp in another country, but also for them how valuable things such as their family, such as education, such as health, it's been a good reminder about what are the important things in life and the things that we should be really, really valuing. And I think maybe as a reflection, I'm back in Australia at the present time and we we get worried about you know, do we have the the latest iPhone or what have you? And is it really that important in the big picture of life? So really a sort of sense of humility with the people who are doing it particularly tough. 
I think as a, a leader, a lot of learning about sort of how to lead in a cross-cultural environment and spending a lot of time to try and understand people's history, their culture, their interpersonal relations, how their society is put together so that you can then guide the organisation. I mean, I'm very careful not to impose potentially a Western paradigm of how we may do things. Certainly in the humanitarian, the aid world, we are held to certain standards, which I could say Western standards of management and accountability, but making sure that you can bring your team with you to deliver aid on the ground in a culturally sensitive way with that community that meets their needs whilst at the same time meeting the requirements for accountability and management in a, in a very Western paradigm. So it's sort of helping to navigate that so those sort of cross-cultural challenges. And I must say that continue to be impressed by young Libyans or Syrians or Afghanis who obviously deeply rooted in their own culture, but are the ones who have got the open minds ready to engage and learn about new management systems or different ways of doing business. So, yeah, I think certainly on the cross-cultural is the other major sort of aspect of learning. Mm, beautifully articulated. Um, and I think we're probably I think we're probably also spoken about this complexity, making sure you're building agile minds so that as things happen, we don't drop our bundle. Okay, we're ready to adapt. And of course, everybody says, okay, we need to write a whole bunch of contingency plans. You, you never the contingency plans are never going to be for exactly what's thrown at you. But if you've built that ability of agile thinking with the team, and particularly with your managers, then you can sort of navigate a path through that complexity. Mm. So I'm hearing three elements of the humility, the leadership and the cross-cultural environment and the sensitivities that you're offering there and then this sense of agility, not just on paper, but I also I imagine the personal resilience that's required in each and every one of your 13,000-strong organisation. Yeah. Mm. Tom, before we dive into the leadership of that organisation, I'm super keen to get to that. But what have been the biggest wins across your career when you look at your humanitarian aid leadership over the last 20 years? I'm interested in your biggest wins and I'm very interested in why you would consider them the biggest wins. I think it would go back to those times where I've been involved with organisations that are really helping people to get ahead themselves. I mean, and I think I sort of alluded to this, at times it is people just need the basics. They need to be provided with food or shelter or water. But the times that I think have been most rewarding has been where you're working with people who are helping their own communities, people who are building their own their own capacities. And so whether it's education in Gaza or vocational training in Afghanistan, we in Afghanistan we're doing a lot of work in northern Afghanistan to help repair all of these old agricultural irrigation systems that took water out of the mountains down into the valleys, working with tens of thousands of people in communities scattered across northern Afghanistan to help after years and years of water to repair all these water networks that enable them to obviously produce a crop and what have you. So helping those sort of communities, I mean, that's enormously rewarding. I was also very lucky to work for a wonderful Australian organisation, which is the Fred Hollows Foundation, 
And once again, obviously, there's this moment where after surgery, people take their patch off and they can see. Now, obviously, I was not a surgeon, so I was not directly involved, but we were supporting surgeons in 20 plus countries. Very, very rewarding to see that sort of patch off moment. But you know, equally, it was knowing that we were working with a, a young ophthalmologist. I remember one one guy who was up in northern Laos, and he had been identified as a very promising up-and-coming doctor. He was supported to do ophthalmology by the Fred Hollows Foundation, and then to be sitting in a clinic which he's running, providing eye health to the people of northern Laos. I mean, that's that's enormously satisfying, and that's that's Australia at its best in terms of working to support other people get ahead. I can certainly imagine the element of hopefulness and optimism being present in those capacity, but longer-term capacity building wins as opposed to the short-term responsiveness on those basic aid fronts. Definitely. And I, look, I think just more broadly, I, given the right opportunities that people, regardless of what country they're from, grasp those opportunities and, and get ahead, it gives you significant optimism but at the same time i as an australian i'm also saying let's not close ourselves off to the potential or understanding some of these it's very quick to jump to conclusions about certain parts of the world and actually once you get on the ground and you start learning learning from these these people or understanding their lives and realizing that their aspirations are very very similar to to people here in Australia, and given the given that opportunity, they really blossom. And you would be hoping the same for those people as you would for young people in Australia. So I suppose that's that's another part of what sort of motivates me. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's driving you around dispelling those assumptions that we might be inclined to make through ignorance or a lack of information about what's happening in these environments? Obviously, you've said that. They're people like us and they have ambition and aspiration and want a good quality of life yeah. and they respond well to support. What are some of the unhelpful assumptions that you would like to see addressed? I think it's very, very easy at times to look at things and make some huge assumptions about a society. I look at Afghanistan. It's very quick for, for people to uh, make assumptions about Afghanistan related to the conflict, for example, or because somebody comes from a country where there's been some Islamic extremism that suddenly it's painting everybody with the same brush. And actually, you get into these places and you realise that, of course, culturally, there are differences, but underlying it is some fairly similar drivers of human behaviour, which in the most part are about providing for themselves, getting ahead, looking after a family, educating children, fairly common human condition. Mm. Tom, thank you for the insights that you've given into the environments in which you've led because so many of us don't have the opportunity to hear the underside to understand the real experience of that and appreciate that. And I'd like to lean in now to your leadership approach within the organisation of 13,000 workers that you lead. Given the size of the challenges, let's start here, and the size of this organisation, how do you stay passionate, inspired and well? How do you not burn out? How do you not suffer from compassion fatigue? 
How do you do this? It comes back to that original thing. I, I think that 20 years later, I'm still driven by this sort of wanting to do something for people caught in conflict. And I think it goes back to that little seed that was planted back in in Rwanda all those years ago. So that is still there. But I, I think you're very right. There are times where I've been very engaged. I've been in a country for months on end. And I've at times thought maybe there's been a bit of compassion fatigue. And I think that, you know, at times you need to get out and just freshen up your perspective. And just having a week back in Sydney now has helped me take step back and take a bit of perspective from what I've been dealing with in Gaza in recent weeks or recent months. But what sort of keeps me motivated, engaged, I love being in these places and learning about a new a new culture and, of course, working in these places. And most of your colleagues come from that country, gives you a unique access into the society. So I really love just sitting in a car and we're off to a programming site or something and chatting to the drivers or chatting to a program officer and understanding what's happening in their life. And I I find that enormously rewarding. And so there's something about a sort of a a curiosity of understanding people because we're a fundamentally, well, I look at the organisation that I'm leading in Gaza. At the end of the day, it's a a human organism that relies upon the will, the motivation, the emotion of people and and getting to understand those people, I find that enormously rewarding, that sense of curiosity about what makes this place tick. Mm, So well put. Tell us a little bit about your approach to leading those 13,000 people. If I had to ask you to put your leadership approach in a nutshell, what would that be? Well, I think it's evolved over the years. I think early on, and I think this is probably the, the leadership experience of many people, is that you start out leading a team. And I was very lucky early on to be leading a group of humanitarian affairs officers in the West Bank during the sort of tail end of the second intifada. And so it was very much 30 people. It was leading a team. Now it's uh, leading a team of teams. And so I've got a series of directors who are running very large programs. Our director of education has 10,000 staff and, and 290 schools to lead. So it's leading teams leading a group of leaders, which is certainly different. I've also realised that the more senior you get, the less control you've got. And so I'm really now trying to understand that my the biggest way that I can lead is through influencing. And it's not only influencing the people who directly report to me, but also being clear in communicating with a much broader group of people. But equally, it's influencing a range of other stakeholders, political actors in Gaza, other parts of civil society, and running sort of similar town hall meetings for for civil society leaders. I've realised I've had to get much better at using things like video. The culture in the Middle East is very much one of, it's an oral culture. You go back to the early days in the Arabian Peninsula, it was about they, they told their history through poems. It's a very oral culture. So writing down a big mission statement and a whole strategy is not really going to, it'll work to a certain extent, but people grasp hold of people's ability to communicate orally so and of course I've got to do that I'm delivering in English and then get it translated into Arabic so learning to be careful with how I express things so that 
They can be clearly translated into Arabic, either direct translation in a big public meeting or through video. And so the, it, it's really been learning about how to influence not only staff but the refugee community and a range of other stakeholders. That's the sort of big leadership challenge at, at mm. this stage. Mm. You know, obviously, I've already mentioned things such as the cross-cultural aspect and, and dealing with complexity and keeping mm. people focused on the long-term by whilst also having these short-term objectives clear in mm. their mind. Tom, if your pathway has been from leading this team of 30 in the beginning through to leading teams of teams at the scale of yep. currently 13,000 and the extension from control into that broader external influence yep. has been part of your journey. I'm wondering what advice you would give to emerging humanitarian leaders. I know that you, because you're so generous with, with what you offer, that you would be a natural mentor for emerging humanitarian leaders. What advice would you give them as they're building their careers in leading complex social change? Learn, 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 learn. I mean, I think that when we stop learning, we stop growing. So always looking for opportunities to to learn. And and if they see something that they haven't taken on before, talk to your manager and say, can I deliver that report or can I lead on that engagement? So really having a very much of a, a learning mindset. And I, I think particularly to work on their communication skills. And I think particularly as a more junior in the organisation, as you're growing a lot of it, you're writing a lot of sort of reports or particularly we're reporting to donors or what have you. And then as you're growing, it's actually then getting on your feet and communicating to groups. And I'd say really work on your communication skills. And that's your listening as well, making sure that you're really listening to what people have got to say, particularly I think in the in the sort of, humanitarian world where you are operating in these cross-cultural environments, you generally not operating, obviously, in your, your own culture. You've got to really listen and explore and ask questions to really get to the heart of issues. And so make sure you work on your communication skills. And a lot of it is also your listening skills so that you actually understand what's happening behind the scenes and how the culture of the place that you are is influencing the culture of the organisation you're trying to, to, the team you're trying to lead or the organisation you're trying to lead. Mm. I'm just going to pull a thread through this that is in my language, not yours, but so many leaders I work with are wanting to create a bigger impact in the world and to do that they need to be they need to be expressing their passion in increasingly senior roles and through the words that you're using around learning and listening and being open and curious, asking the questions, really the approach seems to be for you. It's a question of how do I best serve in this environment? How do I learn and understand the lay of the land here so I can develop my skill sets that are most useful in this environment, communication being the one that you're highlighting here, to serve Look, I agree with you. I mean, I've got a list of sort of things that I go back to occasionally sort of in terms of trying to understand my leadership. And the first of the the top of the list is leadership is service. Yes. At the end of the day, I look at the team that I have in Gaza right now. Everybody has their job. 
my job is to serve the organisation and through the programming that we're delivering, I'm serving the, the, the leadership team with a certain set of skills and that sort of mindset, I think, brings with it then a sense of humility. But I also think it's that you bring people along with you if they see that you're in service of their objectives and what they need to deliver. So I very much see that. But it also at times that understanding that in my current role right now, that part of that service is that, for example, there are going to be some very tough decisions that need to be made, some very tough calls, and that at the end of the day, the senior directors, the leaders in our organisation expect me to make those decisions. And I always come back to this idea, you need to be able to make the tough calls because particularly in these sort of environments, it's much worse than no call. Sorry, the other way around. You've got to make the tough calls because it's worse if you make no call. And so it's sort of understanding, being very clear that as a leader serving the leadership team, what are those things that I'm bringing to the table? I'm not trying to replicate things that they are doing much better than I am and understanding what are the things. Obviously, some of this, I think I spoke to earlier, helping map through some of the complexities. At some points, they expect some decision-making. And I I think I mentioned it also, also, particularly in the humanitarian world, is taking what we're trying to achieve in these complex environments and joining the dots with how do we then how do, how do we then translate that into a programs that will be funded by different countries? Yes. Uh, yes. And, and joining the dots. So a lot of the senior leaders come from that country and may not have experience of dealing with international aid architecture and making sure that you can connect the dots for your local organisation with what's happening globally in the industry. Mm. Through this conversation, I'm learning that you're balancing so many dimensions, the short-term, the long-term, the political, the personal, the geography, the Mm. communities, the internal environment within the organisation, with the external, with your donors and so on. There's a lot of dimensions there to hold. And it makes me want to ask, have you ever thought about getting a simpler job, Tom? (laughs) Have you ever thought about a simpler role? Why do you continue to put yourself in these environments? A few people have asked me that. I get a buzz out of operating in these sort of environments, so maybe it's self-inflicted in that regard, but it can be also enormously rewarding. But I know that at some time I'm going to have to sort of step back a bit from the sort of more active roles in these sort of places, and then the challenge will be to find something that gives me as as much of a buzz as working in Gaza or Afghanistan or what have you. Mm. So, Tom, how have you focused on or improved your self-leadership over the years? How have you grown and evolved as a person in these environments? I I think when I was younger, I just just went and did things and I didn't really, I wasn't very good at, and it's it's probably the same for many young people, not as good at self-reflection. I also think that we are now much more aware of understanding ourselves. It wasn't necessarily something that we spoke about a lot 20 years ago, but now obviously there's lots of literature and lots of podcasts. So there's been a process of sort of understanding yourself. So that's helped enormously because I think that there were, when I reflect back, there are times and circumstances where I didn't bring my best game to the table and I let my own 
point of view dominate the circumstances or I was impatient. And in hindsight, I wouldn't approach it that way. So once again, it comes back to this idea of, you know, of learning, obviously, the external environment, but learning about yourself. I think the other thing has been I'm now much more aware of self-care. If I'm to bring my best to the table, I need to make sure that I'm looking after myself. And so I reflect that probably sort of 10 years ago, I was in Afghanistan. It, I was delivering a program down in the south, in fact, in Uruzgan. It totally consumed my thinking, I probably took some risks there that I, in hindsight, I was being stupid, but I'd lost that perspective to sort of sit back and, and reflect. So I'm much more conscious now of giving myself time. And if that means that I realise that at a certain point of the day that I just need to step out and collect my thoughts, I'll do that. But also just more on a general basis, how important it is. I get out right now and and walk every morning in Gaza. You know, Gaza is obviously on the Mediterranean, so I walk for a couple of kilometres along the road along the seafront. So I walk along that road every morning. Simple things such as I've taken as a bit of a challenge wherever I am to try and buy local, and it's certainly it's, it's a bit different in Afghanistan. You're sort of going down what's in season in the local market, and when I say the local market, it's literally street vendors and what have you, and trying to pull together something so cooking for yourself from the from whatever's local is always good and what are you cooking these days tom i'm cooking a lot of beans at the present time <laughs> and also gaza is obviously on the coast so fish so i'm sort of getting to a bit of fish yeah so cooking locally and then other things just reading and, and finally on reading i mean it's learning to read fiction again mm, tell me why that's important for you I think that there was a period of time there where I found myself reading lots of nonfiction about places that I was operating in or similar contexts. And yes, it was an important in terms of building your knowledge, but I think that fiction that's is a little bit of an escape and gets your creativity going. So uh, trying to read a, a little bit of fiction as well. Mm. I'm curious if you've ever burned out in these roles and what that looked like for you if you have. I think that I have burnt out mm. and without going into the details of it, but it was getting totally consumed by a role. I think that I probably set myself some personal expectations of how I was going to perform and putting a lot of pressure on myself in that regard. And so that was quite a difficult process to go through. And now I'm much better at recognising that I'm pushing it. And I, and I can see it, that I might start losing a bit of discipline in terms of how I'm managing my time or simple things like you realise you haven't cooked for yourself two nights during the week or three nights during the week and that you're losing those little rituals which sort of ground you a little bit in it. But I'm also quite lucky that particularly in a lot of these places, you get what's called R&R, &R, which is six to eight weeks, you get a week out. And it's learning to use those weeks to really Take some time for yourself, decompress. How do you switch off during that time? What do you see yourself doing to switch off? Generally, it's somewhere where there's water. Water, good food, somewhere to sit and read a book, exercise, go walking. Some things are common no matter where you are in the world, no? Correct. Yeah. Tom, as we near the end of our discussion, I'd like to ask you, what are the two or three most important things that are being required of you as a leader in bringing about positive change in the world? 
if I put it down to three things, one is very fast-paced environments, but taking the time to understand the the place that you're operating in, build your understanding, and then learning to then connect that with the broader world. And in our case, in delivering humanitarian aid, that is understanding the local context and then being able to connect your programs to the requirements of the international aid community. So understanding and then connecting would be the first. Secondly, would probably being able to get this balance between what I suppose is compassion and courage. You're generally leading teams of people who are experiencing conflict or war themselves or their family are. So it's being compassionate understanding of their circumstances, whilst also having the courage to push the organisation, push your teams, because in many cases, we are asking people to take risks to go and serve the humanitarian need of their fellow countrymen or women. And so it's that balance for sort of between compassion and courage. Mm. And finally, and I think this has been a sort of a bit of a thread in our discussion, which is making sure that you don't go into it saying, I know how this works, going in and saying, I'm here to learn, maintain that learning mindset in everything that you do. Mm. Tom, thank you so much for your openness and generosity, the stories you've shared about the environments in which you've operated in throughout your career, how you've, it's wrong to say actually how you've grown your career, it's how you've grown your service in some of the regions of the world that most need it and the insights that you've given into how you take care of yourself in those environments. I'm sure a lot of the leaders that will be listening to this will resonate. If there was one thing you would like our listeners to know or do as a result of hearing our conversation today, what would that be? There's lots of big challenges in the world at the present time, I suppose, and I think I'm reflecting now because I'm back in Australia. It's very easy to sit in Australia and say, well, it's all good here and 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 really become absorbed in in our little patch of the world. But what I'd like is that that we we remain open to, to what's happening in the world and be open to humanity, being open to the fact that actually when you strip it all back, there's more that connects us than divides us. Beautifully said. Thank you, Tom. Now, Tom does speak and mentor leaders all over the world. If you'd like to get in touch with him, you can do so via LinkedIn. Is that the best way, Tom, for you? I think it's probably the best, yes. Perfect. Thanks for your time today. Brilliant. Thanks, Angela. I hope you've enjoyed this episode with Tom White, the United Nations Director of the Refugee Agency for Palestinian Refugees. I'm sure you will agree that the complexity of his operating environment is almost unrivaled in our experience. The way he's balancing those long-term capacity community building challenges with the provision of short-term life-saving aid is remarkable and the sense of humility the sense of service his openness to learning and curiosity and in particular his connection and compassion with the human aspects of that environment is something that really will stick in my heart and mind thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the secret life of leaders Make sure you subscribe in your podcast app so you don't miss an episode. 
We would love for you to share this podcast with friends, family, or colleagues who might be interested and inspired by its content. You can follow me, Angela Koning, on LinkedIn or Instagram. And until next time, lead yourself well and everything else falls into place. <laughs>